0: The scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mothers and my brothers, His, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word.
1: Thanks be to God. Before we pray and look at this passage together, I want to give a brief announcement to you. Uh, This year, what you'll see on the screen here is uh, what's called the Global Leadership Summit. This is a uh, training that I have attended the last 14 years, and it's so good that I've required our entire staff the last five, six years or so to attend as a group together. Now this year, we have the privilege of hosting the Global Leadership Summit here at Stonebridge. And here's what I want to challenge you with. I want to challenge you to take two days out of your schedule, out of your work schedule, to learn, to be inspired, and to intentionally grow in your own leadership ability. Everyone in this room is a leader. It doesn't matter how old, how young, everyone's a leader, man and woman. Why is everyone a leader? Because every single person has influence, as it says up here. Everyone has influence. That's a lot of what leadership boils down to, is how you use the influence God has given you. And so I want to challenge you. Take two days. You'll see it's on the screen here, August 10th and 11th. That's a Thursday and Friday. And I know as I say this, some of you are thinking, I may have to take PTO. I would say it's worth it. And many of you, if you check with your manager, it may actually not have to be PTO. It may count as ongoing training for you. So, you'll see details about this in the bulletin. And actually, the reason I'm saying it today is today and for the next three weeks, we have a very low price that we can offer with a uh, certain code. It's $89. That is incredibly cheap. When I go In the past, I've usually paid $200, and that's a reduced ministerial rate, basically. So $89 is incredibly low, and the reason we can offer that to you is simply because the staff has taken the burden of shouldering the work of hosting this thing here, and it's a ton of work. But it's going to be worth it, and I want to encourage you, be part of this. Uh, Take advantage of what the staff is allowing you to be part of. If you have questions, you can talk to any of the pastors. We've been to it for many years. We also have a table set up in the foyer where you can go and talk to people there. If you're at our men's retreat, one of the highlights of the men's retreat was a session that you saw from the Leadership Summit last year. I can't say enough good things about this, but the price of $89 only lasts for three more weeks. If you're a guest here with us, you know what? I'm just going to count you as part of the Stonebridge family. So even if you go to another church or you're just visiting and you want to come to this, you can use that code, our code, and register for $89. That's fine. We're just going to count you as part of the Stonebridge family. If you have any questions, talk to someone. Uh, In the future weeks, we'll have some iPads at the table and help you register in the morning if you need help. But all the details are in your bulletin. That's it. Let's turn to God's Word. Father God, we thank you for your Word this morning. We ask that now as we turn to it, you yourself by power of Holy Spirit would speak to us. Give us ears to hear. Jesus, we pray that you and you alone would be honored and glorified in all that happens here this morning. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Well, did you know that Americans love Jesus, Abraham Lincoln, and themselves? Not necessarily in that particular order, but a poll. The reason I say this is a poll from several years ago was done by a very reputable company, and they found as they polled people in Wisconsin that Aaron Rodgers, quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, had an 89% favorability rating. Only 4% of the people in Wisconsin did not like Aaron Rodgers. And so the pollsters, who have been doing this a long time, said that is an astronomically high number. Presidents don't get that kind of approvability rating. And so they said is there the possibility that there may be people who actually score higher than Aaron Rodgers? And so what they did is they created a nationwide poll done with many, many thousands of people, and they listed people from all of history that they thought would score high. Only three people beat Aaron Rodgers from all of history, and this includes people whether it's Mother Teresa or Mahatma Gandhi, all kinds of people. And the three people were Jesus coming in at 90 percent, 90 percent of people. So he just nudged out Aaron (laughs) Rodgers, coming in at 91 percent. So Americans like Lincoln even more than they like Jesus. You know, whoa, wow, that went ahead. Um, Abraham Lincoln was 91 percent, and yet the amazing thing was most highly rated was self. So all the pollsters themselves said they had the most favorability about themselves than anyone else in all of history, 93%. So I think there's a whole lot of stuff. I mean, if ever there's a win for the self-esteem movement, here's, here's proof. Now, that we could go down all kinds of things about why people think the best of themselves, but what hit me was Jesus having 90% favorability is quite interesting And I think that most Americans like Jesus because they don't really know much about Jesus. They don't truly know what He claimed or what He said about Himself. And I think if they did and they truly grasped what Jesus said and claimed, His favorability may not quite be 90%. Now, I share that because we kind of have three groups in our passage today giving opinions of favorability about Jesus. And so what we see is that as we're going through this book of Mark, last week you saw Jesus commission the twelve disciples. He went up on the mountain, which that was actually a revolutionary thing, as you heard. He commissions the twelve disciples. And why is that so significant? Because symbolically what He's doing is He's reconstituting the nation Israel, which is highly significant about who He is and what He's come to do. And then right after commissioning the 12 disciples and reconstituting Israel, in essence, he goes and continues to teach and heal, exercise demons, the work that he's been about. And we get to our verses today, and in verse 20, the first group that we see is enthusiastic crowds. Verse 20 says, "...then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat." people are flooding to see him and to hear him they can't even eat that means they are so jam packed they can't pass the food out they can't hold it they they just can't even eat there's too much to do too many people flooding them the crowds are enthusiastic most likely They don't fully know. There's probably a lot of self-centeredness in their seeking after Jesus. They're probably misguided in different ways, but what we know is they are incredibly enthusiastic about Him. That's where the good news of favorability ends with Jesus here. The next group is a group very close to Him, which is His own chagrined family. And His family's attitude is this, oldest brother has gone insane. We read in verse 21, when his family heard about this, and I think what it's referring to is that now he's in a home, we can get to him. They've heard about all the other things he's been doing, but now he's in a home, we can get to him. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Now think about that. This is Jesus' brothers. This is Mary, his mother. And most likely, Joseph is dead at this point. We'll read a little later that it was Mary and Jesus' brother. So probably somewhere when Jesus was 12 years old to now, we don't know when. The Bible doesn't tell us. Joseph has died. Jesus is probably looked to as the head of the household in different ways. And he's about his work of the kingdom. And his own family says he's gone nuts. This word here, they went to take charge of him is a very forceful word. Typically, it's translated, someone arrests someone else. Someone ties someone up. Someone seizes someone. His family went to arrest him, to take charge of him. They're embarrassed by him. They don't understand him. And even though we know, for instance, Jesus's brothers, James, who was later called James the Just, became a pillar in the early church. Some of Jesus's other brothers, we know, stood trial before Caesar and were killed, and others were let go, but they all gave faithful testimony to Jesus. But at this point, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus's brothers, even Mary, they don't believe Him. They think He's out of His mind, and they've got to Secure the family reputation. Maybe it was somewhat motivated by we've got to get him, you know, for his own good and contain him, but I doubt it. In a room this size, I know, because I've talked to many of you, some of you are people whose family members think you're insane for following Jesus. You have family members. Maybe they don't literally say that, but they treat you like that. And maybe they're not trying to get you to come to your senses, but they reject you in different ways. You know, many of our brothers and sisters in foreign countries, if you proclaim the name of Jesus, family literally disowns you. If that applies to you, and you are here this morning where your family thinks you are nuts out of your mind for following Jesus Christ, let this passage be an encouragement to you. Jesus knows that pain. Jesus knows the rejection. He knows the misunderstanding. He even knows the hurt that you have experienced. And the good news is he can meet you in the midst of that. Our Savior is a high priest who can relate to us in every way. He knows the pain of family rejection. Now, it's quite bad that his family is so chagrined and embarrassed by him, but it gets a little more sinister as we get to the church leader's. In verse 22, we get to the menacing leaders who say that he's possessed. And what we have happening here, Jesus' ministry is becoming known far and wide. And so Torah experts, scribes and Pharisees, literally come from Jerusalem to where he is to check out this outsider who's not part of the temple complex and to see and hear what he's all about. And their conclusion is not good at all. They say this, and the teacher of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, "'He is possessed by Beelzebul. "'By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons.'" They show hostility towards him. And what they do here, just so you know, this is what happens every day in politics. This is nothing new under the sun with what they're doing. Every day in our country and around the world, You know, if you want to get ahead in politics, one of the best ways to do it is to slap a label on your opposition. If that label sticks, and and it's best if you can somehow, with that label, as you paint your opponents, make them a little less than human. Because now people will stop listening to them. Now what they say doesn't carry so much weight. And actually, now you are free in some ways to say whatever you want about them, if that label sticks. Sadly, it's not kept to the realm of politics. This happens in different races. As one race slaps a label on another race to dehumanize them, to cast them out, to put them aside, it happens, you know, you see it on the TV. Oh. My grandfather was a law enforcement officer, so full disclosure, I have sympathy towards law enforcement, but I know it's a very complex situation with the whole thing, very complex. And I speak to my African-American brothers and sisters who grow up, and there are things that, you know, we white people, we just don't get because we haven't lived through it. And you can see protests at times where all of a sudden a protest turns crazy. And it's because what has happened is one group, and it could be the law enforcement, they've determined that the protesters, for whatever reason, they're scum. And then they can use brutality against them. Because you know what? They're not human. They're scum. And maybe the protesters label the police as pigs. They're not police officers. They're pigs. And if they're pigs, you can do anything you want to a pig. And if violence comes their way, so what? They're not even human. They deserve it. You see, in our society, we're really good at throwing labels on people to justify opinions and attitudes, words, and even actions that are reprehensible. That's what Jesus' legal experts are doing against Him. They are coming up with the worst label they can think of, which is, He is possessed by Satan himself. That's how He's doing what He's doing. They're seeking to sideline Him and discredit Him so that maybe the people will stop listening to Him. And if they don't, maybe we can have our way. And what you see here in Mark, and this happens many times in the Gospel of Mark, the long shadow of the cross is creeping into our passage because when they're saying He's committing blasphemy, He's possessed by the devil... These are the same things the legal experts are going to say about him later on during his trial. So we see the long shadow of the cross even lying over this passage. And one day these same things, these labels, are going to be used to condemn the king of love. So we get different opinions and different labels. What Jesus does now in a lot of the rest of this passage is he says who he is. And what he's come to do. We see that in verses 23 to 30 as he defines himself. Let me read it to you again. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Now let me deal with something that has uh, captured the imaginations of Christians throughout the ages, which is this concept of an unforgivable sin. It's actually not that complicated. And Mark seems to know that people are going to struggle with this and wrestle with it, and some people you know, may be fearful of have I committed the unforgivable sin is probably not what you think it is. Mark actually goes out of his way in this passage to define for us what the unforgivable sin is. He does that because he says in verse thirty, the reason Jesus said all of this was because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So the easiest way to define what the unforgivable sin of blasphemy is against Holy Spirit is this it is knowledgeably and willfully attributing the work of Holy Spirit to the work of the devil. Knowledgeably, you see, they weren't just, they weren't, they were informed and they were willful in what they were saying. And they were attributing all that Jesus is doing to the powers of darkness. Once you do this, you can see there's no way back. There's no road to forgiveness. It's kind of like, if you'll let me use this analogy, it's kind of like someone holding a conspiracy theory. If you hold a conspiracy theory, it doesn't matter what evidence is given to you contrary to that, you're not going to shift. And actually, what true conspiracy theorists do, will take whatever they're presented with and twist it, and they'll use it just to prove their conspiracy all the more. You become blind to the truth. Let me give you an ins- for instance. Say you need some kind of a life-saving surgery, and you go in, and you meet with a surgeon, and you're prepping and all of this kind of stuff, but somewhere along the lines of meeting with him or her, you decide that this surgeon who needs to operate on you is actually not a good individual, rather they're a sadistic murderer. Murderer. If you become convinced that the man or woman who wants to operate on you to save your life is in fact somebody who likes inflicting pain on individuals and actually, oops, oh, so they died. If they're a sadistic murder and you are convinced of that, you're never going to submit yourself to going under the knife by that person. Everything they say is simply going to confirm to you, no, no, they're out to kill me. The scribes, the Pharisees, they have put themselves in a position. Jesus is the source of forgiveness. And when you attribute His healing work to the powers of darkness, there's no road for you. That's why they are stuck. It's an unforgivable, persistent sin. No evidence. Jesus can continue. And realize this. They're not questioning Jesus' ability to heal or exercise demons. That's not part of this at all. They recognize, no, He has done these things. They're simply saying the power with which He's doing them is the power of the devil. So, my brothers and sisters, if you've wrestled with this, have I committed the unforgivable sin? First, if you're wrestling with it, let that be evidence that you haven't committed it. All right? All right? The very fact that you're concerned about it is hope for you. Because if you have committed it, you're not going to be worried about it. Your heart is going to be so hardened like scar tissue, you're not even going to think about it. Also, here's what I want to encourage you in. Focus not so much on verse 29 about the unforgivable sin. Focus on what Jesus says in verse 28 underlined here. This is one of his amen statements. And if you were here for that series, Jesus is saying, bookmark this. This is really important. Take note. Amen. I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. If you're here today and you think you're beyond grace, read verse 28. No, no, no. People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander every blasphemy. The Apostle Paul is grand evidence of that. So now let's look at what Jesus says about himself. He starts with a very common sense answer here. I mean, it's just logical. Why in the world would Satan attack Satan? It doesn't make sense. A kingdom divided is going to fall. A house divided is going to fall. You know, if a husband and wife treat each other as enemies as they live together in the home, that home is not going to last. And in fact, there's going to be a whole lot of pain and suffering until it completely falls apart. And what Jesus does here is he defines himself in a very important way. And sadly, I think a lot of us miss this because we get caught up in verse 29. He says, No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then, He can plunder the strong man's house. Remember John the Baptist? Who did he say was going to come after him? Someone greater than I. Someone stronger than I. So this alludes back to John the Baptist talking about Jesus. But it even goes back much further than that. You see, Jesus is setting up a metaphor here, and he's saying this world has a prince, the prince of darkness, Satan, who is a very strong individual. And in his kingdom, in his castle, are many slaves. Humanity has been enslaved because of sin. They're held captive. They can't set themselves free. They are tormented by the prince of this world who holds them under his thumb, who despises them. That's the strong man. The world is his kingdom. People are his captives due to sin and death and His power. And Jesus says, and yet though He be strong, I'm the stronger one. And and, and, I, and as Jesus said this, I bet those religious leaders, they were incensed all the more because they would have known what He's talking about. It's not just alluding back to John the Baptist about the stronger one. This goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Remember in Genesis, we are living in a kingdom Of perfect communion with God, walking in the garden, full relationship. Everything gets blown up because the serpent Satan comes and tempts Adam and Eve, our first parents, to sin. And everything unravels. And yet, in chapter 3 of Genesis, here's what's said God goes to the serpent Satan and says, Yeah, you're wily. You know what? There's somebody coming who's stronger than you, and he's going to crush your head. You see what Jesus is saying here? I'm the stronger one that my father talked about all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. I have come, and I'm crushing the serpent's head. He began that pressure as he was without sin in the desert, as he was tempted by Satan, As he's healing people and exercising demons, he's putting pressure on the serpent's head. As he dies on the cross, his work is complete. He crushes the head of the serpent. He's still yet to be judged, but the stronger one has come. It's not just Genesis. You can read the Psalms. You can read Isaiah. You can read Ezekiel. You can read Malachi. They all talk about the stronger one. And Jesus is saying, here's who I am. I am the stronger one that you have looked forward to all your life. I am here to set the captives free. I am here to liberate you from bondage. I am here to take you out of darkness into light and to walk with me. I am what your hope has been caught up in, whether you knew it or not, because I am the stronger one, crushing, binding, the strong man. That's who I am. Uh, Where is it? Colossians chapter 1. Listen to this. This this is what Paul writes about. Uh, 1 verse 12. Give joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light, for He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is saying, that's what I've come for. And all these things I'm doing, I'm crushing the head of the strong man. You are not His victims any longer in me. And here's what's so amazing and why I think they didn't get it early on. The way Jesus ultimately crushes the head of the serpent. He's the stronger man, but what does he do? He becomes weak. The stronger man actually gets bound on a cross and dies. And yet we know the good news. A cross meant to kill is our victory. Because in dying on the cross, as he took on all sin and all death, he crushed the powers of darkness. And in Him, He did this not just to make you servants in His kingdom, He did this to make you children of His heavenly Father. And that's the very last thing that this passage focuses on. You see, on Father's Day, and it's funny how this, I didn't plan this, it just worked out this way, the way the passages work, but we have an allusion to a different kind of Father's Day. Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Our passage returns back to Jesus' family with which it began, sometimes called a Mark Sandwich, You'll see this happen all the time in Mark. It starts with something, there's something inserted, then it comes back to where it began, a Mark sandwich, and it's meant to actually all go together and teach you something. What Jesus says here is shocking in his culture. You know, we don't don't hear it the same way, because in our culture it's very normal for families to be scattered across this country, across the globe even. You know, many of you parents are rejoicing that you're Little Lumpkins are home from college because college took them away and now they're home. And while they've grown up, they're still your little kids. You'll always be a little boy, Matthew. (laughs) College takes kids away. Jobs takes kids away. Marriage takes kids away. And so the norm in our country is for families to get scattered. Sometimes you would even think that families seek to live as far apart from each other as possible. Now, I remember a few years ago, my in-laws, who were living in Atlanta, their oldest daughter, my wife, was living here in Charlotte, so that's not too far. But their other two daughters, one was living basically in San Francisco, California, and the other one's up in New York City. And so they had to plan to get around and see their three daughters. That's normal. That is not how it was in Jesus' time. See, in Jesus' time, family was everything, you were committed to family. And Jews understood that family solidarity and the commitment to family is an expression of living as God's people. And what many people have said is that commitment to family for Jews was right up there with commitment to observing the Sabbath. How you loved and were committed to your family was right in line with how well you observed the Sabbath. And so when Jesus says this, it would have shocked everyone. What he's doing, for sake of time, I'll just say it this way. I've come to create a new family. A new family of God, established by my blood, which actually supersedes the blood of your own family. My blood that will secure a new the covenantal family of God supersedes all other ties and commitments. I've come to create a new family whose bonds are meant to be closer than any others. The church always needs to keep this front and center. I love it as I was at our denominational annual meeting this week. For the first time, we elected as moderator a Korean. They've always been Caucasian. For the first time, we elected a moderator. That was historic in our denomination. All the seminars I went to this year, I went to with black brothers and sisters, and we got to talk about racial reconciliation. We got to talk about all kinds of things that are important in the family of God. Because the family of God is meant to show a commitment to each other that supersedes all others. If you look around this room, You have brothers and sisters in this room, and we are called to solidarity with each other in ways that would make the world scratch their heads and say, why do they love each other that way? You earthly fathers who have blood children, if your child needed something, I know you would do almost anything to help them, wouldn't you? This text challenges us. Fathers in the covenant community, Are you willing to do almost anything for your covenant, kids? That's what Jesus is calling us to. Are you willing to lay down your lives? Are you willing to sacrifice your things? Are you willing to reach out a hand to someone who is radically different than you and include them and welcome them in? The church needs to keep this front and center all the time. You know, the military gets this. Colin Powell wrote in a book years ago about a young African-American soldier who was on the eve of going into battle, and he was asked, are you scared? And he said, no, I'm not scared. And he looked over his shoulder and jerked his neck back, and behind him, this isn't the picture, but behind him were people of all races, men and women, People from all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds. And he said, You know why I'm not scared? Because they're my family and we take care of each other. This shouldn't be limited to the military family of God. If we know of a young person in crisis, what do we do to help? What should our solidarity to each other as the family of God look like and where should it be better? I think there's all kinds of application here. The church should be able to say that. That's my family. Because you know what? We're called to go into battle to confront the powers of darkness at every turn that we see them. And there will be opposition. And yet we're going into battle with our family. You see, the gospel creates a community that is to love and to be committed to each other over all others. It's wonderful if our nuclear families all have members that belong to Jesus Christ. That's just icing on the cake. But here's the good news, because I know some of you, you don't have family. Your earthly has all died. Or you may be here and you don't have family because literally your family has rejected you for being a Christ follower. The beauty of this passage is this, you are no orphan because you belong to a family of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers all adopted under the rubric of God who is our Heavenly Father. You are known and loved and accepted in Jesus Christ. And in belonging to His family, we have new worth, new identity, and a whole lot of people who are in this with us. So on this Father's Day, let's be reminded that in Christ, anyone, anyone can be a child of the kingdom with a heavenly Father. For as Psalm 27 says, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord, He will receive me. That's what Christ has come to do. Lord Jesus, we thank You. We've only scratched the surface of this passage, but we thank You for who You are and what You've come to do and that You have made us part of Your family. That You call us brothers that you don't make us simply slaves of your kingdom, you make us full heirs. Jesus, we cannot thank you enough. And we thank you that we don't do anything to deserve this. It's all you. We praise your wonderful name. We give you our tithes and our offerings and we sing this last song to you. Lord, let us... We pray for your family around the world and that every individual Gathering, whether it be here at Stonebridge, Mecklenburg Community, Northside Baptist, every individual church, may every little gathered community reflect the beauty of your covenant family, all for your glory. Amen.